Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1, begins a well-known section of Scripture in which Solomon explains how to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven. And one of the things that he highlights, we're going to jump down to verse 4 there, he says there is a time to weep, but also a time to laugh. There is a time to mourn, but also a time to dance. If you were here this morning, you recall how we had asked the question, does God have a sense of humor? And we had noticed six different examples in the scriptures where there are some pretty funny things that happen. But as we noticed that humor we also talked about some of the very serious lessons that we can draw from the accounts under consideration. And as I had explained this morning, when I first sat down and had my list of scriptures that I wanted to include in this lesson, I quickly realized that if I put it all in one sermon, that we'd be here for a little while. So as I said this morning, some of you might not find that too funny. So we split it up into two parts, and we'll plan to do tonight what we had done this morning, look at six different additional examples of some humorous things, at least things that I think are humorous, but then also talk about some of the lessons that we can draw from those examples. We're going to spend the first part of our lesson talking about Jonah. There's a lot of funny things that happen in the book of Jonah, at least I think. If you turn back to the book of Jonah, we're going to first notice something right at the very beginning of the story there in Jonah chapter 1. <clears throat> Sometimes I have a hard time finding Jonah. It's just such a short little book in there. Book of Jonah, chapter 1, as the story begins here, we're going to read the first three verses of the chapter. We find that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah, and here's where the funny part comes in, Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, went down into it to go with them from the presence of the Lord. Now that's funny because typically when you read an account about one of God's chosen people, whether it's a prophet or one of the Israelite kings that was godly, and God comes to them and says, hey, I want you to go do this. I think about Abraham back in the Old Testament. We're studying in the book of Genesis on Wednesday nights. And several examples where God said to Abraham, hey, look, I want you to go do this thing. Whether it's get up and go to this country you've never been to before or take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. And then as you continue reading in like the next verse says, well, the next morning Abraham got up and he went and he did exactly what God said, right? And so it's very unexpected what you find here with Jonah. You would expect him to say, all right, well, let's go do this, right? But no, he, he decides, 
He doesn't want any part of what God has commanded him to do. He goes the complete opposite direction. As if he can somehow truly escape from the presence of God. And that's what really is the most humorous part, is the fact that he actually thought that he could run away from God and God wouldn't know where he went. As if God would just say, well, I asked Jonah to do this, but I have no idea where, you know, where is he? I guess I'll have to find somebody else. God knew exactly where he went. And we're not going to read the entire story, of course, but you know that the storm arose and the men of the ship perceived that this trouble that had arisen was because somebody on board had done something they shouldn't have. And before long, Jonah kind of fesses up to what he'd done and they cast him overboard and he gets swallowed up by the great fish, as you recall, and kind of comes to his senses. But... Another passage that I thought of as I was thinking about application for us is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. Or I'm sorry, I have that backwards. I want verse 13, but it's actually chapter 4. Hebrews 4, verse 13, talking about God and his knowledge of all things. It says, there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so that's a sobering reminder for us today. You think about different examples of commands we have today, and you can see how people just do what Jonah did. They go the complete opposite direction, right? Don't forsake the assembly of the saints, Hebrews chapter 10. Well, they go just the opposite direction. I don't need to assemble. I'll just stay home and I can worship in my living room or... I can go out fishing and worship God there or whatever it is. And we could just go right down the list, different ideas. I think about also, we know Jesus in his instructions in regards to when we have a problem with somebody, he says, go to the person, right? And talk it out. Now, of course, there's uh, secondary commands in case that doesn't go the way one would hope. Uh, But then what do we do? So often when we get into those situations, well, we do what Jonah did, right? We go the complete opposite direction and we do everything but talk to the person, don't we? So we could come up with all kinds of examples of how we can be like Jonah. But we have to remember, just as it was with Jonah, that God sees everything, that there's nowhere we can run to to escape his sight. And we will have to give an account for our decisions, just as Jonah did. What else can we learn from Jonah? You know, the whole fourth chapter, I think, is just a gold mine of comedy <laughs> because of the uh, just the silliness of Jonah's attitude. Now, in chapter three of the story, that's where he actually goes to Nineveh. Now, a little bit of background, if you're not familiar enough with the, the story here. Uh, the city of Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrians, and they were oppressors of Israel, as you recall. So you can kind of understand why Jonah wouldn't be thrilled when God asked him to go really to kind of the headquarters of his enemies and and preach to them. And as we see here in chapter 4, Jonah kind of explains that. And he, he in talking to God, says, you know, I, I knew that you're very merciful and kind of had in mind that if I go and preach to these people and they change their minds, then you're going to be merciful to them. And that's the last thing I want to see, right? I I want to see him punished for all the trouble they've caused my people. So I'd like us to just read the whole fourth chapter. It's really not all that long. It's just about 11 verses or so. 
So after the people of Nineveh have repented, uh, there's this fast that is proclaimed. The people are sitting in sackcloth and ashes. They realize that they've been doing things completely wrong and they want to make it right with God. But we read in chapter 4, verse 1, that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he became angry. And he prayed to God and he said, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? This is why I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you're gracious and merciful, that you're slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. (laughs) You can't help but laugh at Jonah. It's just so silly that he would have such a a bitterness in his heart for these people, despite all the the bad things they'd done. The Lord asks him in verse 4, Is it right for you to be angry? Now on this first occasion, Jonah doesn't give an answer there, but he goes out of the city and he sits on the east side, and he made himself a shelter and sat under, uh, under it in the shade until he might see what would become of the city. He's still kind of sitting there hoping that, you know, maybe God's going to change his mind after all and, and destroy these people and I'll get to see it, right? So he's going to sit there and, and wait and see what happens. And it says in verse 6 that the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So God's kind of, you know... There, there, Jonah, it's, it's not so bad. Just, you know, hang in there. <laughs> and so Jonah, we're told, he was very grateful for this plant. But then as morning dawned, the next day, God prepares this worm. And the worm comes and damages the plant uh, so that it withers. And it happened that when the sun arose, that God prepared this a vehement wind from the east, and the sun was beating on Jonah's head, and he grew faint. And he again, he's wishing death for himself. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live. So here God asks him a second time that same question. He says, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. (laughs) But the Lord said, we see here that God was teaching him a lesson in all these things that had played out. He said, you've had pity on this plant for which... You did not labor. You didn't do anything to make it grow. It came up in a night and then perished in a night. And so, what's the lesson? He says, should I not pity Nineveh, this great city in which there's more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock as well. So in other words, Jonah, you need to learn how to Look at people's souls. You need to think about beyond who they are, where they're from, what they may have done in the past, and realize that I value everybody. That I, the Lord, want all to be saved. I don't take any pleasure in seeing the wicked perish in their sins. John had something to say similar to this as we think about this application for ourselves. Come over to the New Testament in 1 John, the third chapter there. Read a portion of what John wrote. Start there in verse 10. It says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, 
nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who goes back and uses another well-known example of someone who didn't have brotherly love. He says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And he asked, why did he murder him? Well, because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. He was jealous. Verse 13, he says, do not marvel, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. And he says, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16, by this we know love because he, that is Christ, laid down his life for us. And so we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide? And so he says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And so you think about that phrase there, the one that doesn't love his brother is a murderer. And that can be kind of confusing. Well, how does that equate, right? But if you think about the story of Jonah, I think that that very perfectly illustrates what he's talking about. Because if Jonah had his way, what would have been the fate of all those people? They all would have been perishing in their sins, right? They wouldn't have had any chance for repentance. And Jonah would have been fine with that. But you see, he wasn't loving his brothers, his fellow man. He was he was harboring hatred for his enemies. And so there's a powerful lesson there for us to think about. And the next one that I thought of, in some ways, kind of ties into that same idea. But we find the account in the book of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. We read here about some things that James and John, two of Christ's disciples, do on this occasion. Luke, chapter 9, we'll read verses 51 to 56 there. It says, it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, the talking of Christ. And he sent messengers before his face, and as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But these Samaritans did not receive him uh, because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just as Elijah did. Now, that, now that's funny. It's not funny, but it is funny, right? How silly of them to have that be their, their first impulse, right? Oh, you're not going to receive Christ? Well, then well, let's just call down fire and destroy you, right? <laughs> there's, there's no mercy here, no love. And we'll just wipe you out. Verse 55, we see that Jesus turned and rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so it says that they went to another village. So again, uh, in, in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar, this, this example here to the story of Jonah and some of the things that we'd noticed there. But another good passage that I think is, important for us to remember in connection with these types of things is found in Matthew 5 as part of 
Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and he talks about our attitude towards even those that we might perceive to be enemies. We'll start in verse 38 there and just read down through the end of chapter 5. Jesus is speaking. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Someone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In other words, somebody's trying to insult you. That's the, the idea there behind the slap on the cheek. Trying to provoke you to a fight or something of that nature. Now just turn the other cheek. Don't be easily provoked into some kind of dispute or some kind of altercation. He goes on, he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. From him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. He goes on in verse 43. He says, you've again heard it was said that you should love your neighbor but hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Don't even the, the tax collectors do that? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Again, even the tax collectors, these you know, terrible people, as you consider them to be, even they do that. And so he says, therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so, you know, there's been events in history where so-called Christians went out and whoever didn't want to receive Jesus Christ, they physically went to war with them. Remember the Crusades is, is a popular example of that. Uh, but that certainly is not what Jesus ever intended for his followers to be doing. He doesn't want us to force people into obedience to, to him, but he wants us to, with love, teach the truth so that those who are willing will turn from their sins and embrace his righteousness. Well, let's come back to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 22. And here's a story that I think all of us know of, but maybe don't remember all that well or read all that often. But here in Numbers chapter 22, we're going to read a portion of this. We'll read verse 22 starting and read down through verse 35. But here we read about Balaam, who was a prophet, and at this time... There was a guy by the name of Balak, and he was seeking to destroy the children of Israel. And so he was trying to get Balaam, who he knew to be a prophet, to give him a prophecy that would basically give him permission to go destroy these people. Now, initially, I'm just going to kind of summarize some of the backstory here, because to read all of it would take quite a bit of time. But initially, Balak, he sends his messengers to Balaam, and Balaam, of course, goes to God and says, you know, how do you want me to answer these guys? And God says, look, you are not to tell him to, to harm these people at all. These are my chosen people. You leave them alone. 
But then they come back, right? And now they're bringing gifts and they're offering him all these things and he's thinking, well, that would be really nice if I could get something out of this, right? And and so he's he's trying to lead them on in hopes that he's going to get some kind of benefit out of this. And so he goes back to God again. Now God is upset at this because he already gave him his answer. He already told him what his conclusion was, but now here's Balaam coming back. Well, maybe you'll change your mind so I can get some stuff for myself, right? And so basically this whole episode that we're about to read about is God kind of teaching him a lesson. Listen, you need to pay attention and heed my word and not try and alter it in any way or get me to alter it. So God kind of gives him permission, says, you go ahead and go, but then along the way we see that he teaches him this sobering lesson about how serious he needs to be about when God says something, that's it. You don't try and alter it in any way. So verse 22, there of Numbers 22, says God's anger was aroused because Balaam goes with these men. And it says that the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And so the donkey turns aside out of the way and goes out into the field. So Balaam strikes the donkey so as to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. So he strikes her again. And so now the angel of the Lord goes even further up the road there, up the path. And he stands in this narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. And the donkey again sees the angel of the Lord, and she just lays down under Balaam. So Balaam is now, he's just really upset. You know, what is this animal doing? You know, I'm telling it to do one thing, and it just is doing complete opposite. So it says that his anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Now here's where the funny part comes in, right? In verse 28, uh, Balaam says to his donkey, because you have abused me, I wish... Oh, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. I was in verse 29. 28, uh, it says, The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she says to Balaam, What have I done to you that you struck me these three times? Now, that's funny in and of itself, because here we got a donkey talking to Balaam, right? But I think the most hilarious part is that Balaam doesn't even seem to be shocked by this, you know? He just starts having a conversation with his donkey, like, oh, yeah, this is just what I do all the time. <laughs> the donkey's asking me a question, so I'm going to explain myself. So verse 29, he says to the donkey, well, because you've abused me. You know, you crushed my foot back there, and you sat down when I wanted you to go forward and all these things. I wish there were a sword in my hand, he says, for now I would kill you. So the donkey says to Balaam, am I not your donkey, on which you've ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? <laughs> he says, well, no. And then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? 
Behold, I have come out to stand against you, because your ways perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she'd not turned aside from me, surely I would have also uh, killed you by now and let her live. So Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. But the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, you go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. And so Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Now, to Balaam's credit, uh, he did follow that command. He learned the lesson and he never gave permission from God for Balak to go and harm the Israelites. But that's pretty pretty humorous uh, series of events there. Over here in Second uh, John, Second John, the ninth verse, kind of relates to this whole overall story, and I think the lesson that we can draw. A lot of us know this verse, probably could quote it, but Second John verse 9, it says, Whoever transgresses, some translations will say whoever goes beyond, which is really the idea of transgressing, you're stepping over the line, right, that's been drawn. So whoever does that and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. So if there's one major lesson I think we can learn from Balaam and his donkey, it's that we better pay attention to what God says and recognize that he means what he says, and we have to stay within the boundaries that he has outlined. A couple more here, and then we'll conclude for tonight. These last two are a little bit more succinct than some of the others that we've noticed here. Come with me to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22. We have a kind of comical verse. Proverbs 11 and verse 22. It says there, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. You probably heard, uh, it's been a few years ago, but you remember the election where Sarah Palin was a part of that and they, used, they were using the phrase, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. <laughs> they were talking about certain, you know, uh, policy positions and things. But it kind of relates to this, this proverb, right? It's the same kind of idea. You can put a nice pretty gold ring in the snout of a pig, but I mean, it's still a pig, right? I mean, you're not really, you're not really accomplishing all that much. And so it is with somebody who might pretty themselves up, and this could go for a man or a woman for that matter, who puts on a, a facade in which they appear to be beautiful, but if they on the inside are ugly, if they have a bad personality or they're, you know, just wicked, as is suggested here, someone who lacks discretion, then all that makeup and all that to do is, is not going to really accomplish all that much. It's what's on the inside that really makes the person, in other words. And a couple verses uh, 
came to mind, but one that I thought we'd look at is in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and he talks about some of the things that the Pharisees were doing. It kind of reminded me of this overall idea here. We'll read there in Matthew 23, just the first 12 verses there. Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So whatever they tell you to observe, observe it. But do not do according to their works, he says, for they say one thing and they do the other. They don't follow through themselves. He says, they bind heavy burdens that are hard to bear. They lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. All their works they do, notice, to be seen by men. And so they make their phylacteries broad, and they enlarge the borders of their garments. And they love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues. They love to receive greetings in the marketplaces and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. See how it's all about the show. It's all about their appearance, right? But inside... As Jesus is pointing out there, they're practicing hypocrisy. He goes on in verse 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. You are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. He says, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. So, very valuable lesson for us to think about there. Just a very short verse in Proverbs, but important things for us to consider. And one final one, also back in the book of Proverbs. Look in chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22, and look there with me at verse 13. He's talking about the lazy man here. It says, the lazy man says, there's a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. <laughs> now, <laughs> you can imagine if you called your boss in the morning, just before work was supposed to start, and you said, boss, look, if I leave the house today, I'm sure. I'm just so sure something bad's going to happen. I'm going to get in a car accident, or somebody's going to jump out of the bushes and stab me. I'm, there's there's bad people out there, so I'm just going to stay home. Your boss probably wouldn't find that excuse um, to be satisfactory. I know probably Dave, as a boss, he he probably uh, tell his his uh, employee to get to work, right? <laughs> Take the risk, right? Yeah, I'll come pick you up, right? <laughs> but there's a, a pretty powerful lesson here about laziness. You come up with all kinds of crazy excuses as to why you can't do something or shouldn't do something uh, when you know that you should, uh, just because you're you're being lazy. And Really, the topic of laziness, it could be a sermon in and of itself. There's so many different passages that address the subject. Uh, but I thought of a, a couple verses in the New Testament that speak to the attitude that we should have, especially in regards to doing the Lord's work. You know, 
that kind of relates back to the example that we looked at this morning where uh, there's the feast and everybody starts making all these crazy excuses, right, as to why they can't come and be a part of the feast. But when it comes to <clears throat> being workers in God's kingdom, we need to have uh, the attitude of wanting to work and and striving to work to the best of our ability. Second uh, Timothy 2 verse 15 came to mind where it tells us to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God, to be workers that do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling the word of truth. So we understand that diligence is really just the opposite of laziness. It's somebody who is persistently seeking after whatever it is. They're constantly putting effort towards something. I also thought, of course, of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, the very last verse of that chapter, verse 58 there. He says, my beloved, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So let's not be like the guy who stays home because there's a lion outside somewhere and he's surely going to be slain if he gets out of bed. We understand that there is work that the master expects us to be doing and we need to have the right attitude about that work. I hope that these lessons have served the purpose that I intended, that being to give us a sense of joy because there's a lot of negative things that we deal with in life. There's a lot of negative things that we might be dealing with this very evening. Things that are going on that if we focus on them could very easily drag us down and cause us to be depressed or upset. But we have a lot of, of joy to, to realize in Christ. And as we study the Word of God, I think that we see uh, in some of these examples, that God does have a sense of humor. He wants us to be smiling and laughing and most importantly, remembering all that we have to be thankful for in Christ. In Proverbs 16, verse 24, as we begin to conclude our lesson, it says there that pleasant words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the bones. And how true that certainly is. We had talked this morning as we were concluding part one of the lesson about uh, the words that Peter wrote about the joy that is inexpressible that we have in Christ. I also thought about the eunuch in Romans chapter, uh, or Acts chapter 8, I'm sorry. Remember where Philip gets called to go and join himself to the chariot of this man who is making his way back from Jerusalem. He's reading from the prophet Isaiah, and he's not quite sure what the application is of this prophecy. And So picking up there about verse 34, the eunuch answered Philip and said, Of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or some other man? He just read a portion of Isaiah 53. So Philip opened his mouth, and, he be, and beginning at that scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And so as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. So he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ 
is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. Both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. And they came up out of the water and the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. But then it says that he went on his way rejoicing. And certainly as we think about the forgiveness that we have in Christ and the hope of heaven that we have, uh, there is so much to rejoice in, just as the eunuch did. So this evening as we bring our lesson to an end, if there's anybody here who needs that joy, has never put on Christ in baptism, needs to become a Christian and have that living hope, that inheritance that is incorruptible that does not fade away again to borrow Peter's words we'd love to assist you in that process if you're here and you need prayers we stand ready to pray with you and pray for you whatever the need would be please make it known while we stand together and while we sing